Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Afterword. I'm Dave Tish. The Afterword is our weekly conversation where we talk about what we didn't get to talk about. In just a few minutes, I'm going to be talking to Liz Diddy and Dana Clifford, who both spoke this weekend on a very difficult passage in Genesis chapter 16. But before we get to that, I'd like to take a moment and just ask you who your favorite superhero is. I'm guessing, if you're like most Americans, you have a superhero that came to mind. Maybe it's Spider-Man. Maybe it's Batman. Maybe it's Fat Thor from the Avengers film. This isn't the time, but I think it's really fascinating how fascinated we are as a culture with superheroes. We love this idea, this mythos of a powerful individual going alone to save the day. We love it. Think about all the movies that are superhero movies that have come out as of late. I mean, this is just our modern preoccupation with the self, with the individual, the exalted self, the powerful individual who does something powerful and good and saves everybody through their own efforts. Oh, man, I'm probably going to get sued by Marvel for copyright infringement. Oh, well, it was worth it. Anyway, the point is that not life. That's not how life works. And the problem is because we have that ethos in our hearts, when we read the Bible, we tend to actually try to make the characters we encounter into superheroes. But they're not superheroes. Um, And as we've read the story, as we read the story in Genesis, we're going to see that um, almost like every other character in the Bible, Abraham gets things totally wrong as often as he gets them right. Uh, There's only one model of perfection in the Bible. That's Jesus. He's the hero. And as Tim Mackey once said, instead of being heroes, these characters are, in the Bible, like mirrors. They're supposed to get us to self-reflect. We're meant to study and listen to and really learn from these stories, identify with and see ourselves in the stories, and then ask ourselves, what would we do? What does, what does God do? What is God asking us? They're, they're opportunities for self-reflection. The goal is to enter into the character story and let it become instructive for us. And if we pay close attention, often the biblical authors are evaluating those characters' decisions by narrating the consequences or kind of putting the ball in your court to make connections. The bottom line is there's no superheroes in the Bible except for Jesus, except for Yahweh, the creator God. All the people are messed up. And in in fact, um, if you think about it, sometimes people say that Abraham is in the hall of faith, which is a passage in the book of Hebrews, but I was talking to Jay Kim earlier, and he's like, I, I don't, I really don't like that expression, Hall of Fame. It's not like Abraham's batting 400 and the rest of us are batting 200, and he's a, he's so awesome that he's in the Hall of Fame in faith. It's not really what this is. The Bible's categories for humans are, are you humble or are you proud? That's kind of the, are you humble or are you proud? That's your idea. And of course, humble people bow before God, as Indiana Jones taught us in Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Speaking of Indiana Jones, I actually think that's a pretty good illustration. If you think about the story Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana's action, his life, the whole movie is a flurry of action. 
That's Indiana Jones is going here and there to try to stop the Nazis. And at the end, every single thing he does from the opening scene all the way to the end, it doesn't amount to anything. He can't stop the Nazis. He can't stop evil. He just can't. He's not powerful enough. He's not smart enough. The art gets taken. The idols he finds get taken. The clues that he figures out get stolen. And the Nazis end up with the Ark. In fact, at the end of the movie, he's tied to a pole, helpless. And what's the whole point of this? Indiana Jones can't save the world. Only God can. And that's an instructive model. As we get into this week's story in Genesis 16, we see a terrible story where Abraham is absolutely the opposite of a hero. And his wife also is the opposite of a hero. They're anti-heroes. In Genesis 16, we see that Abraham and Sarah haven't had a child for a long time. And so what happens is Sarah is anxious. She is afraid. And so it says, the Lord's kept me from having children, Sarah said. And she tells her husband, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. I've got Liz Diddy and Dana Clifford here to talk about this troubling and confusing passage, what it reveals about God and what lessons we can learn from it. Let's dive in to the afterword. I have here with me two phenomenal guests, two phenomenal ladies, two phenomenal women, Liz Diddy, Dana Clifford. Guys, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Guys. Well, you. Uh, ladies. That's okay. Dana's from Texas. In California, we know you're talking to us. I know. <laughs> Y'all. We're glad y'all, to be with you. y'all, thanks for joining us. See, you I don't, did. that doesn't sound right coming out of my Ohio <laughs> mouth, Dana. Okay, so this past week you both spoke on, I would say this is a difficult passage. This is a passage where both um, in the story, some of the characters we've been following who we think of as heroes make some really grave errors. They make some big mistakes. Um, Liz, I love the way you put it um, in one of our conversations. You said sin's like a grenade. It not only hurts us, but it has this shrapnel, this, this kind of bomb effect. Um, and that's what we see in this story of Hagar. Um, but before we get into that, I just wanted to uh, just throw this out there. This is a very weird story with weird elements culturally. It's really old. There's some cultural things like maidservants and then you know, impregnating your maidservant and then the child and the, it's very weird. It doesn't feel modern as you just sat and reflected on this story. Like how, how did you like, what modern edges do you see to this very old, very ancient story? Like, how did you bring this? How how in your own mind does this story actually be brought into the 21st century? Yeah, I think you're right. It's hard to even read it sometimes because we just the context and the culture around it is so different and yet relationships and messiness and all of that is very modern too because this is all of these relationships are very messy but I think bringing it into uh, our culture today infertility is still a huge thing Mm. and that um, has not maybe the way we deal with it has changed but the the pain of it has not changed. And I think that is a big piece of it, especially with Sarah and what she's going through and then why she makes some of the choices that she makes. 
Right. It does seem to strike right at the heart and identity of Sarah, um, as you pointed out in your in both of your messages. And so obviously when things strike at the heart of our, our identity, it, it upends us. And sometimes we we do things that, you know, we don't trust God. We just run after the thing we need the most. Liz, what did you see? And when you're processing this, how'd you bring this forward? Yeah, well, just on a, a quick note on the fertility, because I was actually just talking with um, some friends about this last week, uh, and actually um, uh, three men and a woman, um, all of whom had uh, dealt with infertility in their families. Either one was a child of parents who were told that they were infertile, um, others had um, infertility issues um, in their own marriages. And one of the, um, gosh, it was, it was really refreshing to just have a very honest conversation about how robust this topic, how, how robust, I, I, don't, I don't even call it a topic. Mm-hmm. Um, when infertility comes to a family, it affects everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the way that it's not, it's not only affecting Sarah, um, it's, it's affecting her, her relationships with everyone around her. It's also affecting Abraham, um, you know, in a different way. Uh, and, um, and I think one of the, um, one of the couples who has walked on this journey for a really long time and counsels a lot of other couples on this journey, one of the things that they see sort of this story being misused for is um, that, you know, God performs miracles. And if you wait long enough, he'll give you a baby. And I think that can be like a really painful um, misinterpretation of this passage. Um, Yeah. Because if you wait long enough and and you don't get a baby, then it feels like, you know, it, you feel even worse than Sarah. Um, and so I, I think one of the things that we see actually with infertility in the Old Testament, um, it, it's all over the place. Um, yeah. Becca, Hannah, um, Samson's mom, um, Sarah, a, a number of places it shows up. And it is always... Um, God's chosen people who are dealing with infertility. It's, it's not a curse from God. It's not an oversight or being forgotten. Um, there's always a miracle on the other end. And for some people, that miracle is a baby. For some people, it's a biological baby. For some people, it's a baby in a, in a different way. And for some people, that miracle is something that they haven't imagined yet. Um, but what infertility stands for in the Bible is so much more than just, we didn't have a baby. And then God gave us one because that makes it really feel like God is withholding. If you don't get one, Um, but what really is, is um, we had to wait for the greatest desire of our heart. And in that waiting, we watched God do something we could have never imagined him do. And I think um, part of what this story invites us to do is to be open to, um, to that waiting and open to letting God do something beyond our imagination instead of trying to seize the moment and do something on our own because that ends up um, hurting ourselves and others. Um, But it's not, it's not always about the baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, boy, waiting is terrible. No one, no one likes to wait. And it does feel like the pressure of this story is that they just keep waiting. It's been years. Like, do you think that that's the impetus behind this, Dana? Is is have you seen this pastorally that when when waiting happens, it's so painful, people just grab, they seize, they 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 take matters into their own hands. 
I, I grab, I see. So I, yeah, I hate waiting. It's terrible. And I think a reminder for us that the stories and people's journey in the Bible is their journey and it's descriptive of what they went through. Yes. Sometimes we try to make these prescriptive things that it's for everybody. If you do this because they did that in the Bible, but that's not true at all. God is sharing with us the story that they went through and there are lessons to learn in it. And, right. Um, and the, one of the lessons in waiting, whether it's for a baby or something else, is that God wants to be in the journey of it with us and us not trying to force or to make things happen in a way that he uh, does not desire for us. So he wants to be engaged with us relationally uh, and um, at, during this story, there seems to be some of that missing that it's kind yeah. of like, you know, wait, I've been waiting a long time. Let me help God, man. <laughs> how many times have I wanted to help God figure out what to do in my life? And he doesn't need yeah. my help. But. Yeah. But yeah. So Dana, I know that it's interesting because even as you talk and as you shared your, your personality, the way that you are, the way God's made you, it's very similar to my wife. And, and there's this can't get it done, you know, this competence. There's a lot of folks, I think, who probably have a deep sense of, man, I hate waiting. I got to make things happen. I'd love to hear, and Liz, you do spiritual direction too. I'd love to hear what advice you have to people who have a hard time with this, who say, like, look, my whole life, if something is going to happen and if it's going to be done right, I'm the one who does it. I, that I have to make things happen. God's gifted me with these abilities. You have to take matters into your own hands. Otherwise, you're just passive, and that's not faith. How do you how do you counsel people who have that kind of that drive? Who and, and it's everybody at some point, I suppose. But like, what advice do you have for folks as you've dealt with this? And then, Liz, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, there's a, a really a tension there, isn't there? Because God doesn't want us to just be passive with things. He doesn't want us to just you know let go and let God and sit and wait for Him to always pour things down. But it. But it's discernment, I think. It's uh, discerning God. Where is your movement? And Liz can talk more about this too. Where's your? Where are you moving? What have you um, given me? Like with Abraham and Sarah, He gave them a promise, and they felt like they needed to help create the promise and, and that God couldn't do it. Right. And sometimes I, uh, oftentimes mine's not a promise that God has given me in a particular area. So I, it takes, again, goes back to that relationship and discernment. God, where are you moving in my life so that I feel like you're saying, go and move and take a step um, versus leaving God out of the process until until it's disastrous and then inviting him into it. And so much oh boy, of the time, that's, that's so common. Happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's so common. Liz, what do you see? I mean, you, 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 this pattern is all through scripture, but I'm sure you've seen it in the folks that you've counseled, the folks that you've done spiritual direction with the people you've pastored. What, what, if, how do you help people um, who are dealing with this? Well, I mean, I want to start by saying it's, <laughs> very natural to not want to wait. Um, you know, and we see in the first few pages of scripture that see, desire, take is pretty hardwired into our human natures. And we're still living with that today. 
Um, but beyond being a spiritual director now, I used to work in HR in, in high tech. And one of the parts of my job was actually um, to help design like the, um, the rubrics for what transitions at critical leadership points looked like. So if you were a director, how did you become a senior director? Um, and, so, and, um, and so I think a lot of us, like we live in a society where there's like, there's a bar that's set and we have to perform and then we get past that bar and we're conditioned to do this in a lot of different ways. Um, and we're told, you know, if you don't take up and take up enough space at the table, someone else is going to crowd you out. We're told that if you don't, you know, run fast enough, someone's going to beat you to the finish line. Um, there's a there's a lot, you know, there's a lot in the not only the scarcity mentality, but in the reality of scarcity that makes sort of gives us these like filters or paradigms or lenses that we engage with the world in. So, um, you know, do you, do, like, uh, do you, are you living in a war metaphor of like, everything is a battle and I have to, you know, there's enemies out there and I have to win. Are you living in a, um, you know, uh, Olympic metaphor of like, I have to strive for the utmost excellence and perfection. Um, whatever metaphor that you're living in is sort of going to affect how you engage with this. And it's going to sound like nonsense for someone to tell someone in a war metaphor or a perfection metaphor that, you know, you just have to wait and trust God. That sounds like the language of losers, like the, the people who aren't ever going to actually get anything in life. It just makes them feel better to think, feel like they're trusting God. So I, I just want to acknowledge that, that first off, because that's, um, kind of how the cultural moment that we swim the, in, the right? Cultural, the culture that we swim in, this is, uh, this is very, very countercultural. Um, so it actually makes me think of a quote from Parker Palmer, um, and he says that if we lived close to nature in an agricultural society, the seasons as a metaphor for our lives uh, and the fact would continually frame our lives. But the master metaphor of our era does not come from agriculture. It comes from manufacturing. We do not believe that we grow our lives. We believe that we make them. Just listen to how we use the word in everyday speech. We make the time, we make friends, we make meaning, we make money, we make a living, we make love. Hmm. And so, so it's it, build, building with bricks versus the slow growth of an, a plant. Yeah. They're very different things. And I think it's really hard to tell someone in a high performing factory that your factory is not working, that, you know, this industrial metaphor of making things happen is not working. Um, it's not until it completely breaks down um, or until something noticeable happens that the factory metaphor doesn't make sense to us. Um, I, think, I think that has happened for a few of us during the last couple of years. Um, yeah with shutdown, I was talking with somebody about just what it feels like to have, um, to have an identity as like a high, highly competent performing person who can make an impact on your world. And then to just have, you know, the tires come off your bike, um, the, you know, the assembly line in your factory just grind to a halt. 
Um, and, and so I think some of us have had to come face to face with our limitations. Um, and, and for many of us, that's been incredibly painful. Um, but one of the benefits of having a growth or agricultural mindset um, towards our lives is that when things go horribly wrong or when it doesn't feel like anything is happening, we can actually, I mean, it, it, it's not that we don't ever problem solve. Like I'm a horrible gardener, but I know people with gardens like absolutely are paying really close attention to how their plants are doing and how much light they're getting. And they make changes, you know, to make it healthier. But at the same time, um, you know, they can also trust that even if they can't see the seeds beneath the soil, that something's happening. Yeah, boy, and that's that, good. Even if the fruit is falling off of the tree, that doesn't mean that the tree will never have fruit again, that there are cycles and seasons and that there are times in life where it looks like death, but it's actually making space for energy and life to come back in a different way. And so I think what part of the invitation of waiting is for us to embrace um, this metaphor that you know, the scripture uses again and again of, of an agricultural metaphor for seasons and growth over time. And if you are, um, you know, living somewhere else or in a culture that is dependent on the rain and the dirt and, and those things, then I think it's easier to understand, um, you know, like drought isn't like a personal slight. It's like something that happens and it's something that is expected and it's something that you work through. Um, and so um, there's, yeah, it, it, the metaphor itself is helpful in that it helps us to understand and embrace a lot more of life. Um, and it's never meant to be someone just, you know, sitting back and believing that God will do all of the action for them. It's, um, it's actually like a, an invitation to patient growth um, instead of sort of uh, just impulsive making because or, or, fre- or frenzied making, you know, yeah. this, this kind of hurry and this, um, treadmill of performance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, l- l- can I ask you a question about the actual story? Because I don't, I don't think we really had time to get into this. There's this moment in the story that some folks if they've written in or they have questions about, and it's this, it's this moment, not when God finds Hagar, it's a beautiful part of the story. God finds Hagar. But then what's really fascinating is she's been dramatically mistreated by Sarah. It's been a horrible situation. And then God sends her back to this place. This is confusing for a lot of people because a, a lot of times, in, in especially in modern counseling, you would never send a, somebody who's in, in an abusive situation back into that situation. Or how do you, how do you guys make sense of this, of this moment in scripture? No, you would absolutely not send someone back to an abusive situation. And that's not just in modern context. God would not just send somebody back to an abusive situation. Um, it, it looks like God is sending her or God is sending her back home to Abraham and Sarah, but he's not sending her back there to be abused. He's sending her back to safety in this context. She is a single pregnant woman wandering in the desert. Um, that right. is not a whole lot of options here. This is, yeah, she can't get a job in the big city and get an apartment, right? Yeah. No, this is, she is literally on a suicide mission, just wandering to her death. Anywhere is better than there. 
And, um, and so I, I just, I think that that's the, that's part of the story that we can miss in our imaginations, um, is that this isn't, this isn't the modern world in where she had options and safety nets and, you know, and other, and nonprofit organizations yeah. that were going to help her. Like this, she is literally heading towards certain death. Um, so in that case, um, God is actually sending her back to a place where she should be able to live, give birth to her healthy baby, be provided for, and um, and and be in safety. Yeah, Dana, but, how do you make Dana? How do you make sense of this? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely, what Liz is saying, but it's it's complicated, and relationships are complicated, and um, God sometimes oftentimes wants us to work on those pieces it may the the other two players in this abraham and sarah they have things they need to learn too and god is teaching and molding and saying no you've made you've created a mess and with me we're going to um help make some different choices in this, but let's don't, let's don't sugarcoat it either. Their relationship between the three of them and then with Ishmael and later, you know, Abraham's child that's born to Sarah, it's messy. It's not easy. It's not fun, but God says we're, we're in this together. And with me, we can create something different in this, but, you know, I, I really, I like my movies. I like my stories all pretty and tied up (laughs) in a bow and really sweet Hallmark, you know, that's, but um, that's not life. Life is, is messy and relationships are messy. And in that God says, Hagar, I'm going to provide for you and your son, but not outside of Abraham and Sarah, but inside of that mixed up family unit. And um, yeah, it, it, it's sometimes hard to, to see what is that really, how can that really work? Yeah. Well, and I, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Liz. I was going to say, sometimes I wonder what that homecoming looks like. Like they did not tell us. Right. <laughs> and so um uh, it, it's doubtful that it was like a prodigal son moment. Um, Abraham and Sarah did not go after her. Hagar has Abraham's unborn child in, in her body. And she goes off to basically head to certain death and they do not go after her. Um, so one of the, one of the amazing things here is that like Abraham and Sarah were happy to let her die. They were happy to let her and her child die. Um, she was happy to just die, to just get away and die. And this is where God intervenes. Like, no, this is not okay. I am not happy to just let this happen. Um, And, you know, there are only a a handful of people who God appears to face to face um, in the Old Testament. And and this Egyptian slave is one of them. Um, And it's... uh, uh, it's interesting that, um, you know, she, like, I, I just wonder, you know, uh, how she communicated to Abraham and Sarah, what had happened to her huh. um, and Abraham, who had had all of these intimate relations, you know, encounters with God and was holding a huge promise um, for him to be told by the woman who he abused 
that she had had an intimate encounter with the living God um, and that she had a, a directive and a plan for her life that was given to her. Um, I just, I, I really wish the writer would have clued us in on what that conversation was like, um, because I do think that, you know, sometimes we think, oh, you know, Abraham and Sarah had this promise and they were the chosen ones. And so like nothing in their life relates to us. Um, but absolutely God saw Hagar and, um, and he sees us as well. We don't have to be holding on to a promise or, um, I mean, we actually are lucky enough holding on to amazing promises in Christ, but we don't have to feel like we're holding on to a direct promise from God or, or directly chosen by God to actually be seen and honored and cared for by God. Um, and so I think it, it really sort of rips the hierarchy out of what it means to be a son or daughter of God, like right from the beginning. Yeah. Yep. Fascinating stuff. Guys, um, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for your careful work. This is, this is not the easiest. Like, like Dana said, if anything, this story is just messy. The whole thing is messy. So thanks for your careful work on it and help. thanks for walking us through um this story i super appreciate you guys and uh thanks for your insights on this one yeah thanks dave yeah thanks for letting us come and share all right well we'll talk to you guys soon okay that felt like a really awkward goodbye <laughs> i like yeah. wasn't sure when so fine just say, to, say like... goodbye better then okay we'll see you guys then... later <laughs> bye ladies bye. No. okay hold saying, on ready we'll see like, y'all later is that is that good that's Dana? Is that perfect you no, got it, I, I, you got, did I it I, we were confused again when you said guys i just didn't know who you were talking to <laughs> okay oh ladies i'll see you guys uh, see see i i it's, it's a gender it. it's a gender no just so, kidding i can't say y'all it's just it, i just can't do it it just doesn't work all right well we'll see you people who I very much like later. <laughs>All right, folks, just want to say thanks again to Dana Clifford and Liz Diddy. Thanks, y'all. Again, I, I can't even say that. Just a reminder, next week there will be no afterward. We are going to be serving as a church out in our community for Beautiful Day 2021. This is something we've been doing for more than 15 years. We actually don't have weekend services where we all come together. Instead, we disperse out into the city and serve at more than 20 high-impact service projects around our city. So no afterward next week. Have a great time at Beautiful Day. If you haven't signed up, you can do that right now at www.beautifulday.org or visit our website. Be sure and sign up and we'll see you in two weeks.